Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. Good morning. Uh, Our verse this morning is from Acts 9, 1 through 22. And the letters are very small. (laughs) Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if, if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem 
among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Hi, my name is, I'm going to use this. I'm Aaron James Brown. That is my real name. It is a weird name. But uh, welcome. I am the director of discipleship for Urban Village Church. I travel around all the different sites as well. And I am so happy to see you here. God had been up to something. Ever since the Holy Spirit had rained down on the followers of Jesus like tongues of fire consuming them with passion for the good news, things were changing in Jerusalem. The powerful and religious leaders were being questioned regularly. They were being questioned not by people who had the authority to ask questions, but being questioned by insignificant and uneducated folks about their authority, about their ability to carry out God's message. These former followers of Jesus claimed that the man had been raised from the dead. He was the Messiah, they said, and the world had been forever changed. The rumbles and questions from these Jesus freaks, their organizing efforts and growing relationships began to worry the religious leaders. What if those followers of Jesus now calling themselves the way, which is such a cocky name, isn't it? As if we know how the way to go, we have the truth. Those followers of the way convinced enough idiots and sick people and whores and corrupt officials and lazy people to join their cause. The members of the way, those Jesus-loving house church, probably sex-deviant crazed, questionable group of people, needed to be stopped. And Saul, an ambitious young man, hearing of the changes happening among his people and in his city, wanted to join the fight, to uphold the traditions and to be a defender of his faith. He would uphold the cherished values of his beliefs and he would kill anyone who created problems for him. He became like a comic book villain, Saul the Exterminator. That's what New Testament theologian and uh, womanist theologian Mitzi J. Smith calls him, Saul the Exterminator. And the people of the way, these Jesus freaks that were more like mouth-breathing hillbillies with the IQs of fetal pigs, they were like dirty pests. And Saul was pest control. He would enter the scene and toxically take out all the problem people and leave their carcasses as testaments to any other Jesus people, those toilet bowl drinkers, those, those people with inbred mamas who were disappointed in them. Saul, 
It's always passionate, but he wasn't yet a leader. He was present uh, at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. But rather than being on the sidelines, hurling insults and throwing rocks, Saul was more like the religious elite's whipping boy. He handed out rocks and watched the coats while everyone else got to join in the fun of smashing more stones on top of a man's chest, watching his eyes bulge out and his chest collapse in on him. And so Saul, seeing where the power lay, was hoping to prove himself hoping to be worthy of acceptance, hoping to join this religious elite, to be included in this movement of violence rather than being the whipping boy of the brutal and fearful leaders. So he approached them, the leaders of the synagogue, and asked them for letters. These letters were like official seals of Jerusalem council that would legitimize Saul and would give him power to scare and threaten and imprison and even kill anyone claiming to be a follower of Jesus, the one who they say was raised from the dead. And the leaders of the synagogue, noticing, noticing this like cute poor guy trying to get in on the cool gang, they threw him a bone and assigned Saul a difficult task in a far away distant land where they wouldn't have to think about him too much. So Saul headed out on the lonely road, the 135 miles along mountains and water towards Damascus. And Saul became a zealot, became zealous about the cause a cause which he hoped to be included, and a cause which he feared being excluded from. So our lonely exterminator makes his way to clean up the problem of those pesky Christians in a distant city, ready to prove his worth. And along the road, A flash of light bursts across the Israeli sky, and Saul Saul throws himself to the ground, prepared for whatever danger might come out of it that will surely follow. And it's unclear if this burst of light is what causes his blindness, or if it's his ricocheting to the ground and smashing his head, shatters everything in his head. Or most likely, it's the voice of the Lord from heaven which bursts into Saul's brain, firing synapses through his skull at lightning speed and shocking his system and frying all of his optic nerves into smithereens. And Saul hears the haunting and damning question of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? What Jesus is saying is more like a reflection of his words earlier to his followers. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. But Jesus is impatient, and without waiting for a response, he demands Saul to get up and move along, because the roads are dangerous for the most vulnerable and the blinded. 
Saul stumbles along the trail, probably with the help of some others. This man who was once fixated on the destruction of others with a myopic vision of religious beliefs and interpretation is now dependent on others for survival. Is closed off from perceiving right from wrong and senseless to threats which might surround him. And he is taken to a common person's house on a place that was like the anti-boys town of Damascus, straight street. (laughs) He who once wanted to rest in the seat of power is now a powerless individual. He will never be accepted by the establishment as a worthy individual. Who would sanction or call or welcome a groping and clouded individual? So Saul sat in a strange house with a strange sensation, and he sank into a lonely spiral of depression, thinking himself worthless, questioning his purpose in life, what it had all been about, his life's endeavors surrounded by people Saul, the former exterminator, was utterly alone. We're beginning a new sermon series at all of the UVC sites this week, um, and it begins this morning. It's a really, uh, like, happy topic. FaceTime, overcoming loneliness together. We're talking about the loneliness of living in a city, the loneliness of being an adult, post-college graduate maybe, or just trying to find friends. The loneliness that cripples many Americans into inaction and leaves many people feeling isolated or sliding even further into isolation. I'm not... uh, an expert in anything, but I like to read like one or two articles and consider myself an expert in many things. (laughs) And so I read one of those articles this week and it says that people are conditioned to be in relationship with others because in the beginning of time, humans had to depend on others for survival. Communication and relationship were key in order to make it to the next day. Being ostracized from your community, not being able to get along with people, was then a death sentence. And so people evolved to being social creatures who depended on one another. Socialization is built into the fabrics of our beings. And yet we often find ourselves lonely, surrounded by a bunch of people. I have a therapist because I think therapy is great and uh, I need it in order to survive. But I also uh, need someone to tell all of my, practice my passionate speeches with. And so (laughs) I was visiting with my therapist one week and starting off on my litany of things. Maybe it was how my husband seems deaf all the time to just my op, like my vocal range or how annoying sexism is, and I list off the three bullet points I have and start shaking my fist and prattling away at how I will undo all of the things. And I look over, and my therapist, this wonderful woman with this like precise haircut and like tight covered clothes and these practical looking clogs. (laughs) I look over, and she's staring out the window. What the hell? 
lady, what am I paying you for? To listen to me, to think I'm important, to be my friend and to be my advocate and to think I am interesting. But I am a sweet Southern woman and I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and so I react with compassion at all moments. And so instead I turned to her and I said, what are you thinking? <laughs> Reverse therapy. <laughs> and this woman, who is not my friend, because that is not what therapy is for, writes down on her yellow pad of shame, which she'll never tell me what is on it. <laughs> and then looks up at me and says, Aaron, are you lonely? She could cut to the quick, because that's what makes her a good therapist. Do I often check my Facebook messages, my Instagram, my Twitter, looking for that next comment or like to that wonderful article I posted that was so thought-provoking and changed your life? <laughs> yes, I check it several times a day. And have I watched all the things on all of the platforms like Hulu and Netflix and HBO Go and I even turn to cable sometimes just looking for something to entertain me because I've watched it all? Do I late at night sometimes troll through my Facebook feed even though I know it's wrong to look at your screen late at night and causes insomnia but I'm still looking for those people who are smiling and happy and I secretly wonder if they're miserable and kind of hope they are. <laughs> Am I lonely? I think there are two poles that we most fear. The fear of being alone and the fear of being truly known and vulnerable. the fear of having to deal with all that stuff inside in front of another human being. And so sometimes it's easier just to sit at home alone in the dark and wonder if you should text someone or call rather than actually doing it. So after I had this great revelation with my therapist, I immediately walked down the street and sat in front of my computer like I always do and Googled loneliness quiz because you know BuzzFeed made something like that, right? <laughs> I'll click on a few, few pictures of cats and it'll tell me what's wrong with me. Well, actually, in 1976, the University of California in Los Angeles, those people in the Sunshine State who know nothing about loneliness, just about fit bodies, developed what they call a loneliness scale. It's been updated over time, but it's basically just 10 questions. And you know what? I took it, and do you know what? Most people who take it are pretty much moderately lonely. That doesn't sound that lonely, but actually that's just one step away from being severely lonely and one step away from being, you're just okay. So I am moderately lonely. Loneliness is not being alone. And loneliness does not mean that someone is depressed, although it can be an indicator of depression or a precipitation of depression. But loneliness 
happens naturally in life. And do you know what these like wonderful people of this UCLA survey told me that I should be doing? Talk to someone. Great, that's great advice, good thinking. I never came up with that myself. But it's much harder than it really, it's much harder, it's easy to talk about and much harder to do. Because loneliness also shows up when you walk into a church service and feel like you don't know who to talk to. Or loneliness is sometimes staring at your phone because you don't know who to connect with. Maybe I'll connect with someone here. Loneliness is texting someone and then never actually meeting them in person because you're too busy, it's too cold outside, you'd rather just watch 30 Rock for the seventh time. <laughs> Sometimes I find myself in a room of people and I feel like I don't belong or everyone else does belong. And this is also the lie of loneliness or isolation, is that everyone else gets it except for me. No one understands the heartache I have or the crushing feeling of my chest turning in on itself. What if I say something stupid? Being alone usually comes with shame. Shame that we are not desirable enough. Shame that we don't have all our stuff together or shame that we couldn't do it on our own. Saul, at one point in our story, was blinded by his ambition to be among the religious elite, finds himself blinded to the world around him, and blinded by his shame, his inability to move or leave from this person's house, his inability to pick up a cup of water to nourish his dried lips. He oppressed others in order to find belonging, in order to keep, keep clear definitions of who could belong, and then the resurrection Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, turned up with a laser show of brain-scrambling proportions. And Saul, the former, the former exterminator, is even more alone. But it doesn't end there. Ananias is a Hebrew name, which means God is merciful. And Ananias, I imagine, was flipping the freak out when he got this bat signal from God. Like many religious leaders and prophets before, Ananias heard the voice of God, called out and responded, and then said, mm-mm, no, sir. Ananias questioned if God knew what God was asking of this person. You want me to do what? You want me to go talk to who? That fire-breathing dragon of a religious zealot, Saul, is waiting for me? And God, being that sneaky asshole that God is, says, well, I told him that his retinas would be restored and to be on the lookout, no pun intended, for a guy named Ananias. So Ananias knew. Saul was waiting desperately waiting for this one last hope of being restored into relationship, of being restored with his eyesight. 
Saul, a man struck blind, a man once so powerful was suddenly so vulnerable, unable to eat or drink because of his crushing loneliness. And so Ananias got up, got off of his couch, turned off his Netflix queue, and headed to Straight Street. Walking down the street with his head held high, He could hear the people passing him, whispering as he approached the entrance of the house, protecting this wounded exterminator. And Ananias squared his shoulders as he approached the doorposts, sighed a breath of fear, and inhaled a prayer of courage as he knocked on the location of the man who had probably come to Damascus to imprison him. Ananias then saw Saul This person, he thought, who would be so strong, sitting by the window, looking haggard. Fearful of any sound and jittery from the voice of God blaring inside his head. Ananias could have scolded him, could have turned away in fear, but instead he placed a callous hand on this once fearful leader the one who was breathing death threats, who now sat limp by the window. Ananias knelt down next to this violent and villainous man who, was, who had imprisoned and beat and abused and slaughtered Jesus' followers in hopes of finding his squad and remaining safe. Ananias faced this fear-filled man and said, brother. This simple language that said, you are not alone. I am yours and you are mine. You are my brother. You see, loneliness convinces us that no one cares, that everyone else has a group, a community, or a place to belong. When the truth is, everyone feels lonely at some point in their lives. It's just natural. But the truth is that everyone is looking for a brother or a sister or a non-gender conforming sibling to call their own. Looking for someone to say, you know what, you're not weird. I think that too sometimes. Or what you do and who you are belongs here. You are free to be yourself here. You are free to let that freak flag fly here. I'll post mine as well. But being in relationship also requires trust that we are not alone. To then be the Ananias for the other. To extend the hand to another person and remind them, you're not alone. You are mine. I am yours. You are my brother and my sister and my non-gender conforming sibling. And we do this, not because we want to be great people, not because we've got all our things together, but because God has first done this with us. You see, we serve a God who entered into this world not as a successful, well-put-together individual, but God came in screaming and covered in blood. The tears and fears of all the years were met in that tiny, smelly stable that night when God came to be with us. When God refused to leave creation isolated or alone, instead God strengthened that that relationship to say, I will be with and among 
my loved created ones. And we serve a God who understands loneliness, who doesn't pat us on the back and say sympathetically, it'll get better, but a God who knew what it was like to be hanging on a cross, exposed and abused, tortured and abandoned, and crying out, why have I been forsaken? A God who knows what it is to be stripped of human dignity, but we also serve a God who says, loneliness won't win. Loneliness and pain and death are not the end because Jesus didn't stay dead, but showed up with his disciples to cook some fish, to share and break some bread, to pull up his tunic and show his battle scars, to say that this relationship which started was real and will continue. I am with you. I am yours and you are mine. This is the mercy and the relationship of God that Ananias shared with Saul by welcoming this terrifying and debilitating stranger into friendship and community. And this is the relationship which God shares with us and which we are to share with one another. So there are three ways you can do that. Do you like to have three points in your sermon? I don't, but I came up with three. (laughs) The first way we can overcome loneliness together is through prayer. Now hear me out, it's not praying that loneliness will go away, but prayer is not, it's not passive, it is an active stance to say that I am in relationship with God and God is in relationship with me. We convince ourselves that we are stronger because we are praying to the God who hears and who is on our side. The other way that we overcome loneliness together is by worship. Now, there are probably people out there weeks from now listening to this eloquent sermon and saying, oh, she must be beautiful, I can tell by her voice. But just just listening to podcasts or live streaming worship services from our comfort of our home is not enough. We have to show up for worship because it is in worship that we become like a revolution. We hold our fists up to creation with the middle finger held high and say, we serve and celebrate a God who wants to be in relationship with us. And we do that together. On a Sunday morning when we show up and set up chairs, when we brew some coffee, it is all this process of building towards celebration, that beat of a drum, which we didn't have this morning, so it's a strum of a hard strum of a ukulele, draws us into formation. And we say, we are here together to worship our God, and we are not alone. And the last way that we overcome loneliness together It's kind of like those douchebags at the UCLA loneliness survey say, is through conversation. Relationship begins by turning to another person and saying, I see you. Friend, you are not alone. And so, I invite you to turn to your neighbor. Say, friend. I know, do it. Turn to him. Friend. You are not alone. Now turn to the other side. Friend, you are not alone. 
It doesn't just stop here. Like, that's a cutesy little thing that I get to make you do because I have the microphone. But it, it happens when we show up the second and third time to have that conversation. It's like going on a second or third date. All of a sudden, the awkwardness has been stripped away, and you begin to develop this mutuality, this empathy, because you understand someone's story. So the challenge for today is to have a conversation. It's much harder than you think, isn't it? Already I'm building this fear inside my stomach. What if they don't like me? What if I say the wrong thing? And then the second challenge is to have a second conversation and a third. And then pray and show up for worship. Because... By doing all of those things, we are pulling ourselves and people together. But we are also pulling apart systems that want to isolate us, systems that want to separate individuals, but systems that also perpetuate more loneliness and more isolation, that spin people into thinking delusional thoughts or spin people into suicidal thoughts. So what we are doing is so radical because we are preventing suicide. We are healing communities. We are changing unjust systems. We are stopping gun violence. We are ending stigma about mental illness. We are changing stereotypes around race and gender and ethnicity. And we are proclaiming that we have a God who loves us and that we are God's people together. Will you pray with me? God of sureness and calm, We pray that you rupture in us false bravery and teach us we ourselves are enough. That on bread alone, any of us can survive. Because those aren't true. Destroy all the powers of shame and isolation. Any teaching which insists that prayerful words alone are a physician's bomb to ease our souls. Give us the confidence to be honest with one another, to admit our needs, to seek therapy, to seek community, and to accept the love which you have so greatly lavished upon us. May we have the courage to share that with one another. Amen.